Well, we are going to finish Romans chapter 1 this morning. This this, uh, study here has been really, really impactful to me. And uh, I I hope it has been to you. This this message is called The Last of the Given Up. And, And we really will summarize the the message of of chapter 1. I'm going to start reading uh, briefly just in, in verse 20. Romans 1, verse 20. You'll find that there is this, uh, this, this theme carried through in the, in the, last, in the last third of, of Romans chapter 1 here. Verse 20, Romans 1 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, the men of his creation, are without excuse. Because although they knew God, They did not glorify him as God, and that's why they are without excuse. They're plainly seen by the things made, but they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Thankfulness would be the opposite of futility, wouldn't it? It would be usefulness in your thoughts. If they were thankful, then they would have useful thoughts. But instead, they became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And last week we we spent a whole hour trying to understand that the mind is where godlessness begins. And one thing I have finally begun to discover is that... um, it's not referred to as your mind in these first two incidences, in these first two examples of, of how it is that, that man is becoming more and more corrupt. The, the first instance here that he mentions, it's actually just called uh, in verse 24, it's called uncleanness. He gave them up to uncleanness. Now that is in the mind, it's where it's at. The, 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 the man's being turned over to that is taking place in his mind. But it's only called uncleanness here. And in the last condemnation, it's actually referring to the whole mind. And that's where we will be going and, and contemplating this morning. But verse 21 said the thoughts and hearts are changing, the futile, the foolish. And verse 24 says, therefore. So there is a cause-effect relationship being taught to you that is taking place in, in the mind of men. It's a cause and effect relationship. Their foolish hearts are darkened and they change. Verse 24 says, therefore he gave them up. To the things. And as we were learning last week, given up means that the mind's eye and then the life of the person is, is no longer restrained. What was it that restrained the mind before these things are taken away from them. Do you, do you recall what is it that, that kept men from going down this road or that keeps men from going down this road? And the answer is simple. It's shame. It's a powerful 
motivator, isn't it? If you think you're going to get caught doing something wrong, even when you are caught doing it, you'll deny it because you don't want to deal with the shame. That is the power of shame. But when men are turned over, when men are given over, shame no longer restrains them. And so when they're given up, God's restraint is taken away and then Paul advances his discussion. So by the time we get to verse 26, we see the phrase, and for this cause. And for this cause. Was the cause something men did or was the cause something God did? Well, it's both, isn't it? It's it's in some ways similar to what we see in the in the life of Pharaoh hardening his heart and Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Pharaoh hardens his own heart three times, and I think God hardens his heart maybe seven times. So there both things are involved here. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. Where are those affections first born? Where where are they first existing? They're in the mind of mankind. They're in, they're in his mind. And for this cause God gave them up to vile affections. And even women changing natural use unto that which is against nature. You looking at your Bible there? So verse 24 is speaking about sexual sin, dishonoring their bodies. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Verse 27 tells us, Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust, one for another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due or which is unseemly, depending on the translation we look at. Now, think for a moment carefully about this question what is homosexual behavior? Is it biology? Or is it sociology? Or is it something else? If I say it's biology, what would I mean by that in our culture? If I said homosexual behavior is because of biology, what would that mean? Well, that would mean you were born with it, right? That would mean it's just part of the organism. It's part of the creature. He's born with it. So when I ask you the question, is this a result of biology or sociology, what do I mean by sociology? If, if you were inclined to say, I think it came from sociology, what does that mean? Well, then you would say, well, it, it's, it's coming from the culture. It's coming from the, the, the way people are interacting. It's the social dynamic of the day. And so when I ask the question, is it biological? Is it sociological? Or is it something else? What is the answer I could fill in in the third slot there? What else would you attribute it to if there is something to fill in in the third slot here? It is from being given up. The book of Romans is very clear that this is what results from being given up, being given over. It is spiritual. It is spiritual judgment. As as man pushes away, as they won't glorify God, and they pursue the things of their eyes, remember what they're called? Is that that word images, is the word icons, is they're drawn to images, various kinds. They're turned over and then restraint doesn't restrain them anymore from sexual perversion. And then it doesn't restrain them even more to homosexual perversion. What is it from? It is from God giving them over. It is not biological. It is not sociological. Now that is not to say, like if you could find some special kind of microscope and you could look for some, what is the difference between a homosexual man and a... a, 
what are they called if they're not homosexual men? Thank you. And heterosexual men. If, if we could look with the, with the powerful enough tool, would we see a difference between them? Maybe. Maybe you would see. But what is the scripture telling you is the difference that mattered? What is the significant difference between the homosexual and the heterosexual? God's restraint. God's judgment is the significant difference in the history of the progress of mankind. This is the key thing for you to recognize here. When does the mind of man go forward and take pleasure in this? When does it do it? When God takes his restraint away. We need to know that. This kind of sin, whether it be adulterous sin or other kinds of uh, male-female sin or homosexual sin, these sins dishonor them and our bodies. I wanted to talk to you about that just for a minute. Men who exchange God's glory are given over to sins that dishonor their bodies. So very briefly, let's talk about why this is dishonoring to the body. The body was created with a specific purpose. We know this from the book of Genesis and from the comments of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels. So, in other words, you and I know by nature alone... That is, by the obvious function built into nature, we know that man is built for a woman and we know woman is built for man. And so we know if woman is used for woman or man is used for man, that's unnatural. So it's dishonorable. We know that it is a testimony of, of God's creation. We can tell that without having anything written down. Secondly, we know that it is evident according to what God has said in his word. Genesis 1.27, male and female, he created them. Okay? The Lord Jesus refers to this in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. Also, Genesis 2.23 and 24 says, a man is for the woman. She's made for the man because a, a helper wasn't found for him. So he made her for him. A man shall leave his mother and father, and the two shall become one flesh. The scripture's declaration about this is just black and white. It's very simple for us to see that this is the intended purpose. This is the order of male and female. All other, any other uses dishonor what the male or the female body was created for. 1 Corinthians 6.18 is a reference you can mark. Turn there if you can or make a note to yourself. But 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. It is a special sin. It is not like all other sins. Sexual immorality is a special sin. Why does Paul say that every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? When you commit sexual sin, you are actually involving the Spirit, if you're a believer, in your sin. Your body, as a Christian, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. So God's word is really clear that sexual sin, in particular for Christians, are especially egregious. They're especially wicked. Now, if a young man or a woman or if an older man or a woman said they were gay, maybe even only 10 years ago, I'm not sure when this officially changed, but not many years ago it was called a mental sickness. Officially in every, in every state's books, that this is a, a, a mental disease. I believe it could even be called a, a dysphoria. But now we're told that it is something that has just come about by the birth reality. And when you hear that, when, when that's being spoken about, if, if you're with a person who you can actually have a conversation with, it's worth you confronting that lie. 
It is worth you saying what you know to be true. This is something that has taken place because man has first and foremost rebelled against his creator. He, he has stopped glorying in the creator and therefore recognizing who he is because of the creator. This is a result of man's rebellion against God. And homosexual behavior isn't natural in as far as people are born uh, dysphoric. It is natural because men rebel against God. It is natural because as men continue in the rebellion, this is what unfolds in their culture. So at the root of the decline of man, at the root of all wrongdoings of men, is this rebellion against God. Is, is in man's apprehension of God's glory and God's deity and it's, it's man's preference for images instead of God. I'm purposefully not saying the word sin. Um, I called it his wrongdoings there. So let me explain that. I don't want to confuse you. I don't want you to not think I, 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 I believe clearly about what is sin and what isn't sin. Romans chapter 1 doesn't talk about sin. Sin really isn't, isn't, isn't discussed with the word sin until we move forward in the book of Romans a little bit. So as Paul is telling this story of the history of man's unrighteousness and man's ungodliness, those are the terms he's used. And by the time we get to Romans chapter 3, all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, along with what we read, I think, in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, these are going to be condemned by God. They are sin. The book of Romans just isn't using the word sin just yet. So look at verse 28. We're going to kind of see the, the final the final layer, the, the, the final collapse of, of man's godlessness and, and man's unrighteousness. So beginning at uh, verse 28, he finally says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So this is where the terminology is more explicitly speaking about the mind in general. Uncleanness was the first thing men were given over to. Vile passions was the second thing men were given over to. Here we see that they are given over to a reprobate or debased Mind. The New King James used the word debased, and the King James uses the word reprobate. And we see that there is a proportional relationship, whereas Paul has said, as they did not like to retain, he gives them over. There, there, there's some proportional thing going on there that he has given them over to a debased mind. And so notice their very mind. The whole thing is what is being talked about as being given over in this last section of, of chapter 1. Look at 2 Timothy 3.8. We'll look at the one verse by itself, and we may look at more of it um, a little later. But just look at 2 Timothy 3.8, and you'll see the exact same word here that is debased or reprobate. <coughs> 2 Timothy 3, verse 8 says, now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. Now Timothy is being taught here, we could make a whole sermon or two out of this, but Timothy is being taught here about the men that are going to be among them. In other words, Timothy is being warned, in your midst, Timothy, with other professing Christians, there are going to be men among you who are like Janus and Jambres, who are reprobate. 
In other words, Timothy, among you in your church, people who want to come into your church are going to be men like Janice and John Brace who are reprobate in their minds. They are not believers. They are enemies of believers. Their minds are disapproved concerning the faith. And what that means is, is while Moses is speaking to Pharaoh, saying, Pharaoh, let our people go. God has told me to... For, for, forgive me for inserting like colloquial words, but as, as Moses is persuading Pharaoh with his words and with his signs, Janus and Jambres were doing what? They said, Moses is nothing. We can turn a stick into a serpent. And so the two magicians, the magicians of Pharaoh, did what to the word of God? They nullified the word of God. Janice and Jambres nullified Moses' authority by copying his authority. So what was the effect to believers? What was the effect to someone who might be persuaded to be a believer? What is Pharaoh supposed to think when he, he sees a true man of God speaking the words of God and then he sees a charlatan doing his tricks? What is Pharaoh supposed to think? Well, he's just not sure what to think anymore because they're both doing the same tricks. And so he ignores the authority of God. So who? what do you think about these two men, Janice and Jambres? What were they in it for? What was their motivation? What kind of men are they? They're crooks. They're thieves. They're blasphemers. They blaspheme against God by saying God doesn't mean what he says. You don't have to listen to God. I can do those tricks too. Being disapproved concerning the faith or being reprobate concerning the faith means you are just an utter unbeliever. You are entirely disapproved concerning the faith is that reference in 2 Timothy 3.8. That's what the word reprobate Means. So let's ponder the meaning of the mind without God for a second. The, the mind given over is, is the theme here from verse 28 on. Let's consider the mind without God. As we ponder the changes in the creature that was created in the image of God, that the men that we are reading about early in the book of Romans chapter 1 on down through the end here is is in some senses the same man. What is the progress of this man who was created in the image of God? He's gone from unclean to vile to a debased mind and their pleasures and their joys are unrestrained by any shame and they have minds that are ungoverned by right. Their minds are entirely ungoverned now when they come to this level of depravity. Right governs your attitude toward God. Truth governs your attitude toward God. If the mind does not flow from God's mind in this way, then what does man's mind produce? If man's mind is not flowing from God's revelation, if it's not flowing from the person of God, if man's mind is producing its own thing, what does the man's mind produce? What does the reprobate mind make? And now we will begin reading a list in verse 29 to answer this question. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, when, when, when the mind of man is reprobate, what are the principles that make the mind? What are the rules that make the mind? What are the values that motivate the mind? That's what this list is. Unrighteousness governs the mind. Sexual immorality governs the mind. Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are, now he 
slightly switches the perspective. These are the kinds of people they are. These are the kinds of things that are done by people with minds like this. They are whisperers. They are backbiters. They're haters of God. They're violent. They're proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. Disobedient to parents. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. So we see that the reprobate, as Paul unfolds this in the end of chapter 1, the reprobate is characterized by all of these traits, or we see these things manifest in the person who is the reprobate. Where does he come from? When you say whisper, is that like gossip? Yeah, and I'm going to go through all those words here in a minute. That's exactly what's talking about is people who is kind of talking behind somebody else's back. The reprobate man has come from what? He's come from the man that we read about early in this prognosis. There is a man who has a certain view of God, isn't there? Look back at verse 19. What may be known of God is manifest in them. There are certain characteristics and attributes of God that men know because God has placed it in them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So when we're reading about the reprobate mind, that has begun by the mind who is not gripped by the holiness and the greatness of God, but that mind wanders like, a, like an unruly animal. From verse 29, there are at least 10 words that I see as being principles that God condemns. Ten words that are principles because they produce a life. These, these words, these, these characteristics produce a life that does not flow from the life of God. This is what I want to help you see here. The mind derives its own standards here. The mind now unrestrained, makes its own guidelines, its own rules, its own principles. Unrighteousness is a willingness to be unfair, to be improper, to not let right be your guide. The mind that is sexually immoral will satisfy its every sexual desire or many of its sexual desires apart from God's order. A sexually immoral person without principle won't care that God has a moral or a standard for that. This mind, I believe, is also <clears throat> driven to seek and to have whatever it wants, covetousness. It, it sees something that it wants and it has no restraint of self-control, no, no restraint of propriety, no restraint of humility. And so the eye of this person will, will pursue and, and try to have whatever catches its eye. Thinking about maliciousness, they plan to get even. They're not ashamed to try and get even with somebody who they think has hurt them or who deserves to be gotten even with. Maliciousness. They will plot this person's fall or their loss or their harm. Envying is comparing yourself to others. Compelled to be like them or to be better than them or to prove your own excellence and your own equalness or your own supremacy to them. Envy. 
looking down on and despising people who you find to be too successful or too beautiful or too good. Murder, we know, is a principle of hate and anger. No regard for another person's life. Strife is fighting. And some love to fight, some just with words, some love to fight with their words, some are great arguers and they never miss a chance to take up a fight in their arguments, even if it's a stupid argument. Do you guys know some people who love to argue even if they're wrong from the start? They just love to argue. They love to be contrary. Some people, or some have a, a characteristic of what is a principle of acceptable deception. So after, after a fighter, we, we run into this person who a certain kind of deception is okay. They, they have a principled willingness to deceive, to get their ends, to get their goals. They're willing to do it because the end that they desire is proper, and so it doesn't matter what they do. Their deceptions are okay. And their minds will pursue. Their minds will have. I do think in some ways the, the idea that underlies um, Darwin's theory of the survival of the fittest or of, of what is called evolution, but the survival of the fittest is the rule that governs the mind of the reprobate. That is, they do whatever they feel like and whatever they want to get what they want, to do what they need. And that doesn't mean everything they do looks wicked to you. Because sometimes that's bad. If I let you see how wicked I am and everything I do, you can tell is wicked. Well, that's not what the survival of the fittest does because that will get you coming after me to stop me. So I have to learn how to be deceitful about that, don't I? And so these characteristics form a godless life that is unmoved by God's revelation of himself to his creatures. And at the end of verse 29, we see the mind. Most of the words in, in, in the rest of the passage here are what this mind does and how it behaves toward other men. Whisperers talk about the failings of other men. They talk about the despicable traits of other men. They speak about the weaknesses of others when they're not around. A whisperer is speaking for the harm, for the demise of somebody behind their back. Some speak and act to harm them in order to cause their loss. Betraying their reputation or hurting their harming their reputation in some way. So we have whispers, we have backbiters who are willing to hurt and harm those behind their back. Some openly hate God. Some, many today are very, very open about their atheism, aren't they? It's a very popular thing for the last 10 or 20 years to be an atheist. Some take to violent deeds and will do deeds and works of violence for their own pleasure. They enjoy it. They, they take a thrill in it. Honestly, some of the video games that I know are popular in this day glorify violence and, and teach young people to degrade or to despise the honor of doing good and of kindness and of building instead of destroying games glorify destruction and murder and mayhem and that is not uh, an accident that is something that has become commonplace and its effect has been to degrade minds of young people some people wear their pride. The proud, they wear their pride. They're bold and unpersuadable by any reason or appeal. They're just prideful. Some brag. 
They can boast about their skill or they, they hold their skill up high in their own hearts, never willing in their own hearts to give praise or commendation to another. They're proud about their intelligence. They're proud about their humility. They're proud about their devotion. Boasters see themselves exceptional. Better thoughts, better works, better deeds, better plans. They, they would do it better. There are inventors in evil, it says, devising new ways of, of cruelty or deception or of harm. They're creative in the way they steal, perverse in unimaginable ways. Disobedient to parents could speak about the Dishonor and disrespect for parents, disdain for parents, or just strictly a, a complete disregard for the, the rule and the right of parents to train and give direction to their children. They've cast off knowledge. They've cast off wisdom. They cannot discern. You see this lack of discernment is one of the things happening here. They're unable to discern. It's right at the beginning of verse 31. Undiscerning. Undiscerning is a result of the debased mind. You see that? They cannot discern right from wrong. They cannot evaluate. Some cannot be trusted. Saying and doing whatever seems right, not saying and doing according to their own word. Some won't love. Some will not forgive. Some have no mercy. And these all come. These are all there in the heart's of men who, while they had the opportunity to glorify God as God and to be awed by the deity of God and the eternality of God, they didn't. They turned to images, turned over to uncleanness, turned over to vile thoughts and passions, and then they're turned over to a debased mind. All of these characteristics that we read, if we read them positively, the first one would have said righteousness, for example, or merciful. All of the positive examples of these things that we read, why would somebody be like that in a godly way? It would be because they knew the love of God by observing the love of God, by observing the glory of the love of God, of the mercy of God. When a man is rightly connected to his creator, to understanding who and what his creator is, he is he is drawn to that, he is devoted to that. And then these things in their positive sense, in their positive way, then become like the creature who is admiring it in his creator. You see the relationship here? The thing that man has come to admire instead of God, has come to have all of these attributes that are called ungodly and unrighteous. There's a relationship between what the man loves and what he's devoted to and the kind of character that is in his life and in his heart and in his mind. And so this portrait, from beginning to end, it reveals that all men have principles and fruits that God did not design and desire for them, but they are a result of man's corrupt abandoning of the deity and the glory of God. And ultimately, the reprobate is lost to God. Say that again, Mike. I said, ultimately, the reprobate is lost to God. His mind is so utterly gone that he cannot be saved. Look at 
Proverbs 1.22 with me. You can ponder maybe a little bit about the life of the Pharaoh or maybe a Judas as we are reading through this. But the reprobate mind has become so defective. It's, it's become so twisted in its reason and how it works that it cannot be brought back to God. Verse 22, Proverbs 1.22. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, quote, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. So they would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Now there's an interesting spectrum of realities in this passage. It's a long passage. Look carefully at verse 23. Mark it. Circle it. Take note of it. Turn at my rebuke. Surely... I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. That is God's grace and favor for the one who is soft-hearted to him, for the one who goes to him, for the one seeking him for life. He is a savior. And so there is a time when that, that truth there is true for every single man. There is a time when we get to the end of this passage, though. There is a time when men have turned their hearts, when men have turned their back to the Lord so constantly and so steadily that they are lost. The man who is completely reprobate has a ruined heart, a ruined mind that will not turn to God. They're lost. You see both of those people in this passage. You see hope for the repentant. You see hope for the one who is turning to him in repentance, seeking forgiveness, seeking life. The end of the reprobate is loss. The end of the reprobate is loss. Christians do not resist God's charge. Christians hear God's rebuke. Christians hear God's charge of wrongdoing and of sin and they confess. They confess to Him with humble hearts and they plead for and they receive His righteousness. Christ is the righteous Savior. Christ is the one who is pure in all of the areas we've been reading through in Romans chapter 1. Christ is the one who possesses the only righteousness. But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And then Paul carefully lists out what what is all of the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. These things in their entirety is the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And these things in their little bits are the the cancerous elements of ungodliness and unrighteousness in men. And and if you read this and go, oh, I'm not a homosexual, so I'm good. God's God's wrath isn't going to be poured out against me. You're reading it wrong. Homosexuality and and, and these other kinds of sexual sins are, 
are, are part of what is wrapped up in the depravity of men. The last section we read here, the section describing the mind that is debased, the mind that is given over, I can guarantee you, you find your own mind exposed in that list of things. Not all of those things, maybe. But maybe even all of those things. It's not meant to cause you to feel so ashamed and so embarrassed that you're such a bad specimen among men. Why does Paul put this here? Why has God's Spirit made these things evident here in chapter 1 of Romans? So that you could be honest with yourself. So you could be waking up to say, I am unrighteous. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. I must flee from my life. The passage I just read you in Proverbs, you should mark and go read it again. God responds in kindness and salvation to those who come to him seeking forgiveness in life. But you who would turn your heart, you who would leave your heart hard against him, you may very well find yourself in a place someday and you are not able to come to him. There are numerous examples in the scriptures of men who find themselves in that strange, terrifying situation. The last verse, speaking about these men who have a debased mind, it says, they know the righteous judgment of God. Men know that at the end of the age there is an accounting. They know that there is a a measuring. Most men look at that, they think about it, and they know they're going to be fine because they think that they're better than most men. They think God grades on a curve. If you believe God grades on a curve, then there's no need for the death of the perfect lamb. The perfect lamb is the only standard. That is holiness. That is righteousness. And that is the righteousness that God requires. And that is why the gospel is the glorious good news, isn't it? Paul isn't ashamed. Paul is thrilled. The gospel is the power of God and salvation for everyone who believes. The Jew person also in the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Not by listing off those things so that you can do them all and have it. So that you can know you need serious help, brothers and sisters. And this is why we worship. This is why we worship. We are worshipers of the one true God. God who gave his son to atone for your sins. Will you close in prayer with me? Oh, great God, how we pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you would give us discernment, Lord. To know our own selves, dear God. This word here is here that we might know ourselves. We might know the great need of salvation. Oh God, may may not a one of us be guilty of self-righteousness. May each one of us on our face plea for forgiveness, gratefully receive the righteousness of Christ. Oh God, we love you and we praise you for for telling us the truth about ourselves and for offering a, a Savior for us. We thank you and we praise you. In the name of the risen Son, amen. Please stand. We're going to sing number 403, okay? Four, or did we just sing 403? No. We're going to sing 403. 
precious fountain, free to all a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find just beyond the river. Near the cross, a trembling soul, love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star sheds its beams around me. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the O Lamb of God, bring it scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadows o'er me. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever, till I reach the golden strand just beyond the river. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Dear God, we praise you for the cross of Jesus Christ where the price of sin was was atoned for. Oh God, I pray for your work in our minds and our hearts this week that would be true worshipers of you lord and we would learn to walk faithfully for your glory we would set our hearts and minds fix them on you lord we love you and we praise you in jesus name amen